Huck's words, we had the sky up there all speckled with stars and we used to lay on our backs and look up at them and discuss about whether they was made or only just happened. Annie Dillard's words, you do not have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is necessary, but the stars neither require nor demand it. I have been living under the stars for six decades now, but I just last month finally grasped something about the stars that is about how they work from our perspective. I could always tell you how to find the North Star, Polaris, the pole star, by looking for the two stars that make, uh, make the far end of the bowl of the Big Dipper and then following their line upward to the pole star, that singular star with no other bright stars nearby. But I hadn't bothered to understand what that piece of knowledge gives me, which is a whole orientation to my place in the universe, a global positioning system of the most ancient, fundamental kind. Last month when I was out in the clear night and far from city lights, I finally grasped the truth. With the help of a little drawing by H.A. Ray, author of Curious George, in his classic 1952 book on constellations, the drawing was of the underside of an open umbrella. Uh, Ray said, basically, imagine the dome of the sky over your head as the inside of an umbrella. Hold the umbrella by the base of the handle and look up. The pole star is at the top of the handle, at the center of the umbrella, directly above the north pole. Um, And now imagine the constellations are painted on the inside of the umbrella, the Big Dipper on one side and of the pole star and Cassiopeia that looks like a W on the other and now you twirl the umbrella slowly to the left and that's how it goes from where we stand in Minnesota. In the northern hemisphere we see the whole sky, all the constellations slowly rotate around the pole star one turn every day, well every 23 hours and 56 minutes to be exact. The pole star is the only star that keeps its place in our sky. Whether or not the moon laid them, there are countless stars out there. And to find our place, we can look for one star that doesn't move or barely moves, one star that has served as guide to mariners, to nomads, to explorers and travelers of all kinds for thousands of years. During the first half of the 1800s, it guided African-Americans in our southern states, those who were escaping north. We know that Negroes on plantations taught each other encoded songs, songs with hidden instructions like follow the drinking gourd, follow the drinking gourd, find the Big Dipper, then the Pole Star, then head north. One verse goes, the river ends between two hills, follow the drinking gourd. There's another river on the other side, follow the drinking gourd. This was geography. As soon as they were old enough to understand, the slave children were taught that the pole star could get them there to freedom, their birthright 
as human beings born under the stars. For a month now, I've been thinking about the kind of metaphor that pole star can be, a metaphor for the trustworthy guide, a reliable reminder of our position and direction if we can go out into the dark and find it. To have our path made clear, wrote Joseph Conrad, is the aspiration of every human being. After my new realization, the next thing I did was enter Polestar into Google search. But I must have spelled it wrong because what came up on the screen were websites not about Polestars, but about pollsters. <laughs> but it gave me an idea, <laughs> which was to do a little informal survey right around here. And I began asking church staff and asking some of you, spiritually speaking, what serves as your pole star? Where do you look for orientation when you want to have your path made clear? When you need to remember your direction, what helps you? Here are some of your responses. One person said, the present moment is my pole star. Coming back to the present moment is like finding true north. Journaling is what one person said. I journal till I've worked through the top layers and uncover my bedrock truth. Mortality, said one of you. Remembering I'll die is my pole star. It clarifies everything. Gratitude is my pole star. Coming back to gratitude, I return to reality. Friends are my pole star, said one of you. When I'm at sea without a compass, a friend will help me remember where I am. Music and song, said one of you. You said, when I'm in fragments, I sing out loud whatever song comes to me, and miraculously I am suddenly all there again, body, mind, soul, whole, working as one. I'm convinced, this person said, that I am a tuning fork. When I'm singing, I'm vibrating in harmony with the universe. When I asked you what serves as your pole star, none of you quoted law or scripture. No one mentioned rules or commandments. You all spoke of a deeper, embodied knowing, born of experience. And what about you? What's your pole star, you asked me? My answer was that it could be any of these you've mentioned and has been. A friend, a return to gratitude, a memory of mortality, a song. Whatever it takes to help me touch a truth that vibrates in harmony with the universe. A knowing that's deeper than words, deeper than creeds, deeper and truer even than conscience. Deeper than conscience. I almost titled this sermon Beyond Conscience because it's a thought that keeps coming back to me recently through the words of educator Parker Palmer in his book The Courage to Teach. This is what Parker Palmer says. The teacher within is not the voice of conscience but of identity and integrity. It speaks not of what ought to be but of what is real for us what is true. The teacher within is not the voice of conscience, but of identity and integrity, he says. 
More and more, this means something to me as a truth of my experience and as a facet of our faith. I'm inviting Huckleberry Finn to the table of this conversation because for me, the journey of Huck Finn illustrates exactly what I'm getting at. Huck, of course, is a boy and an orphan, an outcast from St. Petersburg, Missouri, on the Mississippi River. He's the white child of a southern racist culture where there is no moral dilemma about owning African people as slaves and treating them as property. It's not a moral dilemma. It's accepted. It's not questioned. Huck has internalized this. But he begins to change as he helps Miss Watson's runaway slave, Jim, escape to freedom by accompanying him down the Mississippi on a raft. Jim is going not north to freedom, but south to Cairo, Illinois, then east. Through Huck's eyes, we see Jim becoming not a faceless piece of property, but a human being, and it goes against everything Huck's been taught. Here are Huck and Jim on the raft, and they're expecting to see the lights of Cairo any time now. Jim is watching as if his life depended on it, which it does. And just as a note, uh, at several points I have omitted a word that starts with N, a word Huck's people said easily, but one I can't get myself to say. So Huck, uh, Huck and Jim are approaching Cairo, and Huck says, he said, he, Jim, said he'd be mighty sure to see it because he'd be a free man the minute he's seen it, but if he missed it, he'd be in a slave country again. Every little while he jumps up and says, there she is, but it weren't. It was jack-o'-lanterns or lightning bugs. So he sat down again and went to watch him, same as before. Jim said it made him feel all over trembly and feverish to be so close to freedom. Well, I can tell you it made me feel all over trembly and feverish, too, to hear him because I begun to get it through my head that he was most free. And who was to blame for it? Why, me. I couldn't get that out of my conscience, no how or no way. It got to troubling me so I couldn't rest. I couldn't stay still in one place. I hadn't ever, it hadn't ever come home to me before what this thing was I was doing. But now it did, and it stayed with me and scorched me more and more. I tried to make out to myself that I weren't to blame because I didn't run Jim off from his rightful owner, but it weren't no use. Conscience up and says every time, but you knowed he was running for his freedom, and you could have paddled ashore and told somebody that was so. I couldn't get around that, no way. That was where it pinched. Conscience says to me, what had poor Miss Watson done to you that you could see her Jim go off right under your eyes and never say one single word? What did that poor old woman do to you that you should treat her so mean? Why, she tried to learn you your book. She tried to learn you your manners. She tried to be good to you every way she knowed how. That's what she'd done. I got to feeling so mean and miserable I almost wished I was dead. Later, after more adventures, Huck's still working on this. He says, I tried the best I could to kind of soften it up somehow for myself by saying I was brung up wicked, so I weren't so much to blame. But something inside me kept saying, there was the Sunday school, you could have gone to it. And if you'd done it, they'd have learned you that there are people that acts as I've been acting goes to everlasting fire. But made me shiver, and I about made up my mind to pray and see if I could 
try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better, so I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be. And then Huck has this idea. He'll write a letter and turn Jim in. He says, why, it was astonishing the way I felt as light as a feather, right straight off, and all my trouble's gone. So I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and sat down and wrote, Miss Watson, your runaway, Jim, is down here two miles below Pikesville, and Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send. The most beautiful reading of Huck Finn I ever heard was by the students in Rafe Esquith's fifth grade classroom at Hobart School in Los Angeles. Maybe you've heard of Rafe Esquith. His fame has spread these past ten years or so with the help of a book he wrote, Teach Like Your Hair Is On Fire, and a DVD documentary called The Hobart Shakespeareans which shows us Rafe in action with his 10-year-old students. His students are largely children of immigrants, mostly Asian and Hispanic, some years all Asian and Hispanic. English is their second language. Most live below the poverty line. Their elementary school, Hobart, which is huge, is surrounded by a 15-foot chain-link fence and sometimes the sounds of gang violence. Rafe wants these kids to know they are Americans and to know what that means. His motto, be nice, work hard. The kids volunteer to start their school day at 6.30 a.m., and they come on vacation days as well. Rafe teaches them baseball and guitar, takes them to Washington, D.C. for a tour, directs them every year in an unabridged Shakespeare play, which they accompany with guitar music. His class reads aloud the classics of American literature, of Mice and Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, the autobiography of Malcolm X, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. On the DVD, the Hobart Shakespeareans, they are reading Huck Finn aloud. The passage is close to the climax in Huck's crucial decision. As they listen or read, the kids stifle their sobs and sniff back their tears. They get to the place where Huck has his bright idea to write a letter revealing Jim's whereabouts, and turning him in. Again, his letter says, Miss Watson, your runaway Jim is down here two miles below Pikesville, and Mr. Phipps has got him and will give him up for reward if you send. After he writes the letter, Huck says, I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this happened so and how near I come to being lost and going to hell and went on thinking and got to thinking over our trip down the river and I see Jim before me all the time in the day and in the nighttime sometimes moonlight sometimes storms and we are floating along talking and singing and laughing but somehow I couldn't seem to strike no place to harden me against him but only the other kind I see him stand in my watch on top of his and instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping and see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog and such like times and would always call me honey and do everything he could think of for me. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the man we had smallpox aboard and he was so grateful and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now 
And then I happened to look around and see that paper. In, in Rafe's class, this is the point where Rafe says, it will be finally time for Huck to do the right thing and turn him in and make him a slave. And that is the right thing, isn't it, boys and girls? It is the right thing, don't you think? That's what society is telling him. And then Rafe takes his turn reading Huck's words. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling because I got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, All right, then I'll go to hell and tore it up. At this point in the documentary, Rafe asks a little girl, Danielle, to take her turn reading, and she tries, but she chokes on tears and can't. Rafe says, it's okay, I told you all, this is powerful stuff. So he asks them, what decision did Huck make? The climax is over. He's going to be, and a boy offers the answer, he's going to be a bad boy. Rafe nods, he's going to be a bad boy. According to this world, he will. But he's going to be himself. He's not going to let society tell him what to do. And isn't that a decision all of you have to make? Society is going to tell you how to dress, what pop group to listen to, how to cut your hair. Isn't that ridiculous? Each of you is so individually special. I hope you guys make these kinds of decisions in your life. Rafe has been doing this, teaching fifth graders for 20 years. He makes $44,000 a year, and he won't leave Hobart. His former students write him from law school or their art studio and tell him that he saved them. I hope you guys make these kinds of decisions in your life. I suggest that what Rafe is doing in his classroom is what we hope to do in our liberal faith. Save each other in this way. Help each other distinguish between our culturally conditioned conscience and the integrity of our experience. This is what we're saying when we say we're a faith not of creed, but of faithfulness to our inward teacher, our own pole star. This is why it can be a challenge to talk about our faith in any kind of neat soundbite, because what we're about is waking ourselves the way Huck was awakened. I suggest that Huck's story is a coming-out story. He comes out as a bad boy that is someone who chooses against the voice of his conscience, his internalized culture, and chooses to be an ally of Jim's personhood, a radical choice. I suggest that our faith is one that encourages us to come out in whatever way we must in whatever way integrity urges. Our faith is a faith, ideally, that creates places in our congregations, makes room for us to craft and tell and live out our coming-out stories. Most of us have one. Coming out as a person who's gay or lesbian or bisexual 
or transgender coming out as allies of these or as allies of Muslims or allies of women seeking abortions or allies of the incarcerated or inner city kids coming out as a universalist in our evangelical family coming out as a liberal Christian in a Unitarian Universalist congregation coming out as a person who's chemically dependent or disabled or dealing with depression coming out is a big part of the work of our church and it means always means rocking some kind of social family or cultural boat on August 16th as a church we'll be coming out as a church in favor of Roman Catholic women priests according to the Vatican we are remarkably bad boys and girls Lately, the the Vatican, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, has been cracking down. It's launching, I read this in the Christian Century in May, it's launching a campaign that will require all groups of Catholic women religious, thousands of them, in the U.S. to prove that they are teaching the official church doctrine on these three points. One, the necessity for an all-male priesthood. Two, the superiority of the Catholic Church over all other Christian churches, and three, the problem of homosexuality. They'll be tested. On August 16th, when we gladly offer our sanctuary to the women priests for their ordination, we are essentially taking the Vatican's charge in our hands and saying, all right, then we'll go to hell, and tearing it up. Maybe because your life experience has shown you as mine has shown me, that women are as able and holy as men and as equipped to stand in for Jesus. And your life has shown you, as mine has shown me, that the mutual love of our gay brothers and our lesbian sisters is as sacred as any other love we've ever seen and often braver. I suggest that this is what we are so often about, our hearts trumping our conscience. And so it will always be if we listen to the voice deeper than conscience, our truth. I suggest that finding our truth often asks us to go out into the night, the unknown of our raw experience. It may cause us a little more trouble and labor sometimes. We do not have to go out and sit in the dark, not at all. We could stay in a well-lit room and read the chart someone hands us. We don't have to go out in the dark and search for our guiding star. Neither God nor society demands it. It's only this life of faith that requires and demands it. This precious life of faith. So may we continue on, glad in one another's company, Blessed be.